right, in this segment we're going to talk about, about science, technology, its interface, I guess, with human affairs, and do so, I think, at least starting off with the theme put forth by the great Wilson Misner, who we quoted on the show before. Misner once said, I respect faith, but doubt is what gets you in education. And we think it's healthy to have a great deal of skepticism as we go through life, especially when you see various claims about things, and especially when you hear about something really being really bad or something being really good, because oftentimes there's more to the story. Case in point, Economist Magazine, their August 23rd issue, had an, an article about biometrics, which has been very much in the news of late, how we can uh, be recognized by Big Brother or the NSA or whoever. But to quote from the magazine, noted that with some pride, the FBI trumpeted the news last month that thanks to the agency's facial recognition system, Neil Stammer, wanted for sexual assault and kidnapping, had been apprehended in Nepal after being on the run for 14 years. Noted the magazine, the truth was slightly more prosaic. A State Department official had used the FBI's wanted posters in a test for passport fraud. Yes, the system then matched Mr. Stammer's face with that of an American calling himself Kevin Hodges, who regularly visited the embassy to renew his visa. Noted the magazine, still, Mr. Stammer's arrest illustrates the growing importance of facial recognition technology. Of course, in this case, I guess the technology is the wanted poster. Yeah, I guess that would have been new technology to Wyatt Earp. But uh, they're pretty serious about this, using all kinds of metrics to measure how far apart your eyes are, the relationship of your ear, the different angles of your head, yada, yada, yada. Here's the part I like uh, from this, <laughs> this piece. It noted that governments are not the only ones interested. Earlier this year, Facebook's Deep Face System, which sounds disturbing, Deep Face System, was asked whether thousands of pairs of photos were of the same person. It answered correctly 97.25% of the time, which we have to admit may not be such a great breakthrough. If you ask human beings whether <laughs> the two pictures are the same person, they're correct 97.53% of the time. Nevertheless, this is worth keeping an eye on. All these different 3D models are going to make of all of us in order to decide who we are. A little disturbing. Of course, when it comes to assessing people and who they are, we're amused by this story. Apparently, researchers at Ohio State University decided to find out if someone is a narcissist. And their method? Ask him. In fact, the people at OSU found that asking people outright generally yielded much the same result as a commonly used 40-question diagnostic test. For this study, students were simply asked, do you agree with this statement? I'm a narcissist. Note, the word narcissist means egotistical, self-focused, self-focused, and vain. They were told to select a number from one, not very true of me, to seven, very true of me. People who agreed with that description, the researchers found, also were identified as narcissists in the 40-question test and openly displayed narcissistic traits, such as low empathy and less commitment to relationships. Now, the author of the study, Bram Bushman, acknowledged that a single question couldn't fully replace the longer, more nuanced test, which diagnoses different kinds of narcissism, but he said the quickness of the test would be beneficial in some circumstances and went on to suggest using that question on a first date. Bushman told the Los Angeles Times, narcissists are very bad relationship partners. It might be nice to find out how much of a narcissist someone is. 
And here's a look at what makes people tick that's also a bit curious. This is also another piece from The Economist, their August 23rd issue. Under the title of Crime and Poverty, they noted that Aristotle once said, poverty is the parent of crime. But now they're taking a look at that and concluding that, well, maybe not so much. The magazine notes that poverty and crime are associated, without a doubt, and the idea that a lack of income might drive someone to misdeeds sounds plausible. But over in Sweden, researchers at the Carolina Institute published a study in the British Journal of Psychiatry which casts doubt on the chain of causation, at least as far as violent crime and drug misuse are concerned. They tapped into a rich trove of personal data which Scandinavian governments collect about their citizens. And in Sweden, we should note the age of criminal responsibility is 15. So researcher Amir Saraslan tracked his subjects from the dates of their 15th birthdays onward for an average of three and a half years. He found to no one's surprise that teenagers who had grown up in families whose earnings were among the bottom fifth were seven times more likely to be convicted of violent crimes and twice as likely to be convicted of drug offenses. But what did surprise them is that when they looked at families who had started poor and got richer, the younger children, those born into relative affluence, were just as likely to misbehave when they were teenagers as their elder siblings had been. In other words, family income was not per se the determining factor. Magazine notes that suggests two not mutually exclusive possibilities. One, that a family's culture, once established, is sticky. That you can, to put it crudely, take the kid out of the neighborhood, but not take the neighborhood out of the kid. Given, for example, children's propensity to emulate older siblings whom they admire, that sounds plausible. The other possibility is that genes which predispose to criminal behavior, several studies suggest such genes exist, are more common in the bottom of society than at the top perhaps because the lack of impulse control they engender also tends to reduce someone's earning capacity. Magazine notes that neither of these conclusions is likely to be welcomed by social reformers. The first suggests that merely topping up people's incomes, though may well be a good idea for other reasons, will not by itself address questions of bad behavior. The second raises the possibility that the problem of intergenerational poverty may be self-reinforcing. Note to the magazine, this is only one study, of course. Such conclusions will need to be tested by others. But if they're confirmed, the fact that they're uncomfortable will be no excuse for ignoring them. And let's find some subjects that are a little more uh, positive. Exercise is something we've touted in this program as being one of the few things out there in the world that may be all it's cracked up to be. And uh, the evidence keeps piling up that that's true. In fact, they've been trying to figure out what's the minimum amount of exercise you need to do to improve the quality of your life. And it turns out that one study has shown that five minutes a day is about all you need, at least that's if you're out there running. Researchers examined the medical records of 55,000 American adults over a period of 15 years. They found that 24% who described themselves as runners were 30% less likely to die of any cause during that period and 45% less likely to die of cardiovascular disease. This translates into some striking statistics. The mortality risk from not running, 24%, was higher than that from being overweight, 16%. Also, having a family history of heart disease, 20%, or having a high cholesterol, 6%. When the researchers divided these group of runners up, and according to how much they ran, starting from those who ran up to 50 minutes a week to those who ran for more than 175 minutes, to their surprise, they found the benefits of running were essentially the same across all groups. From that, they calculated that as little as 30 to 59 minutes of running a week was enough to significantly reduce the risk of premature death. 
Well, or at least put it in the back burner and get some track shoes and start running. Seems like if you get some exercise, you're going to feel better. Researchers down in Sydney, Australia took a look at what exercise can do to dull pain. It's long been known that intense exercise can temporarily dull pain. When muscles begin to ache, the body releases natural opiates like endorphins that help relieve the discomfort for as long as 20 or 30 minutes after the workout. Now scientists believe that effect may be more permanent. Now they only recruited 24 uh, volunteers for this study, but they did measure the pain threshold of all the subjects, at which point they started to feel pain and assess their baseline pain tolerance. Half the volunteers undertook a six-week program of moderate exercise. The control group's pain threshold and tolerance remained the same. But while the exercise group subjects still felt pain at the same level as before, their tolerance was substantially higher. They could withstand the discomfort for much longer than before. So there you go. Maybe you can get by with less Motrin and more exercise. And speaking of medicine, here's, a, here's, a, here's an item I just have to quote directly from the week on. As follows. One of the most commonly prescribed heart medications in America may be shortening the lives of some of its users. Digoxin is used every day by millions of mostly older patients and is also prescribed for heart failure. The drug helps slow abnormal heart rhythms and strengthens the organ's contraction. But when researchers followed more than 100,000 people with atrial fibrillation, an irregular heart rate that affects about 3 million Americans, they found that those prescribed digoxin were 21% more likely to die over the next few years than those who were given other drugs. Here's the part I like. Despite the drug's widespread use, American doctors dispensed about 6.5 million prescriptions in 2012. Relatively few studies have been carried out on its efficacy or safety, and it has never been subject to a rigorous clinical trial. I have to pause right there to think back to those days in medical school when I, I sat there in this foreign professor who didn't speak such good English, was talking about his research on digoxin and talking about it and talking about it and talking about it and showing Frank Starling curves and showing uh, levels of uh, performance and showing uh, blood levels after ingestion and going on and on and on and on. And now I find out 30 years later, nobody's bothered to study this stuff, even now. The week noted that this latest research drew on a sample size 20 times larger than that of previous studies. Stanford professor Mintu Turahaki had told the New York Times, I don't want to say that every patient should come off this drug, but this data should make us pause and really evaluate whether we should be using this drug as much as we do. Holy crap. Also in keeping with the good news, bad news theme here, we have uh, two different pieces. And again, I'm relying on The Economist, which is a damn fine magazine, talking about deforestation. A couple of examples. First, in Brazil, which is somewhat optimistic. There's a feeling that Brazil has taken some steps to re reduce the amount of deforestation going on. And this is important because, according to the magazine, Brazil with 5 million square kilometers of jungle, has almost as much as the next three countries combined, Congo, China, and Australia. I don't know. I hope they're right about this curve bottoming out and bouncing back. That shows a little graph in the magazine how uh, Brazil is basically still losing its forest cover, but 
the theory is once you bottom out at a certain point, you start to bounce back. And the examples are India, which is up a little bit from its bottom, and then Costa Rica, which has bounced back a little bit. I don't know. This remains to be seen. But we hope it's some good news. But uh, the news from China is maybe not so good. The magazine notes that according to Greenpeace, just 2% of China's original forests remain intact. Decades of rampant logging and overgrazing have sped the degradation of land and soil. Over a quarter of Chinese territory is now covered in sand. Now against this foe, China's been building another Great Wall, this time a green one. The Three North Shelter Belt Project is by far the world's largest tree planting project. Since 1978, 66 billion trees have been planted by Chinese citizens. At the project's end, slated for 2050, it's intended to stretch 4,500 kilometers across the edges of Chinese northern deserts and cover 42% of its territory. The idea is to increase the world's forest cover by more than a tenth. They note that tree cover in the Three North area has increased from 5% to 12% since 1977, but critics say those figures, which are published by the State Forestry Administration, which also runs the project, define dryness in a healthy tree rather loosely. And they note that in contrast to successful attempts elsewhere to halt deforestation or replace recently felled trees, most of Chinese planting is on long, barren land. Most of it is of non-native pines and poplars, which are easy to grow and produce wood that can quickly be sold as paper pulp or planks. The result is an ecological mismatch, according to Jiang Hong of the University of Hawaii. Just 15% of trees planted on China's drylands have survived since 1949. Now, many died of age, grown from cuttings, as most are, only have a lifespan of about four decades, but most were simply unsuited to the soil. And, of course, monocultures are prone to disease. In Ningjia, in northwest China, a pest wiped out one billion poplar trees in 2000 and basically undid two decades of planting efforts. And there's a law of unforeseen consequences. In arid areas, trees may actually aggravate desertification by depleting groundwater and killing grasses that bind the soil. We've heard an awful lot about this project in the past 10 years, and you certainly, you know, wish the best for it, because, you know, as goes China, so goes the world at this point. But they do note that since 2003, 450,000 people have been moved out of Inner Mongolia to prevent its degrading further. Said the economist, this is perhaps the clearest sign yet that the Great Green Wall is failing to keep out the enemy. And here's another spot of bad news. They're now seeing house-sized waves up in the Arctic. Apparently researchers from the University of Washington uh, observed a Beaufort Sea storm in 2012 and saw bigger waves than any seen before in that part of the Arctic, where it's now warmer than any point since humans began living there 44,000 years ago. Previously, there was just too much ice for waves to form. And a piece by Eric Holthaus in Slate Magazine notes the waves aren't just a symptom of the Arctic's icy woes, they may accelerate the problem, according to research published earlier this year by these same researchers. The waves may be a mechanism for accelerating ice retreat, which in turn causes even bigger waves. Ouch. Well, that's, that's, there's no, not much good news in that one, but here's one that may have a bit of good news, in spite of a darker side to it. Apparently, researchers down at Caltech may have discovered, entirely by accident, a switch that turns off appetite. Apparently, some folks down at the California Institute of Technology were investigating how a small group of neurons in mouse brains affects fear. Using a technique called optogenetics, 
They manipulated those neurons to make them sensitive to certain wavelengths of light. They then activated them by exposing them to that light. The the team assumed that the mice, which happened to be eating at the time, would show signs of fear. Instead, they stopped eating and wandered off, no longer interested in the food. Researchers then found the neurons could be activated by chemicals mimicking bad tastes, nausea, and the sensation of feeling full. And that by altering the process, they could also turn the appetite on. Professor David Anderson told the BBC.com, it is likely that similar cells exist in the human brain. If this is true, and it can be proved they are involved in inhibiting eating in people, they could one day provide pathways for the development of therapies for many different eating disorders. (laughs) Yeah, eating disorders is the tip of the iceberg. This is going to be the new method of, uh, of, of developing fat farms. If we've got little brain switches that shut off appetite, people are going to start manipulating those switches. Mark our words. And something else they've been looking to manipulate is some sort of um, method of turning stickiness on and off so you can walk up a wall like a gecko. And what I think is a classic example of half-assed explanations, we've been told for years that geckos can walk straight up sheer surfaces by the hairs on their feet. Apparently, gecko toes are covered by millions of tiny hairs called CD which create an intermolecular bond with the surface. We've been told that it's van der Waals forces. But the part that was always missing from this explanation is, okay, that's great when the gecko puts his foot against the wall and it sticks, but how do they walk up the wall? Well, some scientists were troubled <laughs> by that uh, faulty, faulty logic, so they've been trying to figure this out. Uh, geckos, by the way, can run at speeds up to 20 body lengths per second, which you probably observed if you've been to Hawaii which means they have to unstick their feet as efficiently as they stick them. How do they do it? Well, the thinking now is they do it by the angles of the CD. To turn the stickiness on, the lizards adjust the angles of the hairs by a few degrees, and to turn it off, they shift them back. Supposedly doing this expends almost no additional energy and happens almost instantly, although the logic and how they figured that out is not presented in the information here. But lead author Alex Greeny, from Oregon State University's College of Engineering, said this discovery could help scientists develop better adhesive material. He told the Washington Post, we envision that robots will use gecko adhesion in extreme environments in the future. And I know we've all been waiting for that. All right, a couple more items from space. The, uh, the Rosetta spacecraft is heading out to Pluto, where it'll arrive on June 14th of next year. It stopped a picture of Neptune a couple weeks back, which was all over the web. And I thought, I wonder how close Neptune is to Pluto, because they're both way the hell out there and aren't necessarily that close. In fact, they're definitely not that close. Neptune was something like 2.6 billion miles from the spacecraft's cameras, telescope slash camera when it took the photo. Meaning, if you take a look at the positions of the planets, which are apparently 60 degrees apart, you've basically got a giant equilateral triangle. Oh, we do have to recommend going onto the web and finding that uh, reconstructed NASA view of the flyby of, of Neptune's moon Triton. They, they took the, uh, the old photographs from the Voyager 2 spacecraft and uh, put them in sequence so you actually get the effect of flying right by the moon. Spectacular. Check it out. And also out in not quite as deep a space, the people at the European Space Agency are using data from the Rosetta craft. All right, to clarify, the other spacecraft is the New Horizons spacecraft, 
New Horizons. The Rosetta spacecraft is orbiting the comet 67P cheryumov gerasimenko <laughs> It's going to try and pick a landing site for November. Now, it turns out the very peculiar uh, shape of, of this comet means that its microgravity is going to have a very strange distribution. So landing on it is going to be tricky business. They're trying to pick out spots where they'll be able to do this. It's got to be flat. It's got to be an area that doesn't have a really weird gravitational anomaly. But I think they're going to pull it off, and I think it's pretty dang exciting. And this might be a good time to take a break. Let's do that. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.